to the Valley to Peak Nutrition Podcast. This week, I am joined by Josh Kuntz. If that name sounds familiar, you've probably heard him on a couple of other episodes and usually within the context of hunting and talking about navigating time in the backcountry. Our episode's a little bit different. Josh recently got into doing ultra marathons and he takes this from a little bit of a unique perspective, which is why I felt like it would be a really good episode to cover. He did one ultra, did phenomenal. He repeated his nutrition plan and the second ultra and kind of fell flat on his face, both literally and figuratively as you'll hear about. And so one of the best things about the episode is we talk through what happened, why it happened, potential fixes, and the application is very broad. So even if you're not an ultra runner, even if you've got no aspirations of running that far, the context of what we talk about is still very applicable for somebody who's covering miles on the trail or training for anything of that sort. So Josh covers a lot of things. He asks a lot of really great questions. And there's just a number of nutrition topics that we don't cover a lot on here, which made this what I feel like to be a really good episode. So sit back, grab a pen, grab a piece of paper, take some notes. If you've got questions after you hear the podcast, as always, you can send those over to me at info at v2pnutrition.com, and I'd be more than glad to answer those. But without further ado, here is Josh Kuntz and two different stories of doing an ultra. Well, let's dive in. I'd like to hear what your elk plans are. Maybe we can cover that at the end, either on yeah. or off air, but I'm always interested and I can weave in some of what you've already said, but I think just an introduction of who you are and how we know each other and kind of just some background and then we can dive in. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you having me. My name is Josh Kuntz. I'm 46. I live here in Boise, not too far from you actually, but I did spend the first 32 years of my life in Bozeman, Montana. That's where I grew up. I'm a lifelong athlete, played all the traditional sports, basketball being the primary one. And then, you know, being Montana, I also did some skiing, mountain biking, backpacking. We're going to, I think, discuss a fair amount about some of these trail running events I did this summer. I was always just kind of an occasional trail runner. Back in my 20s, I did a couple long races there out of Bozeman. It's called the Bridger Ridge Run. I took a, essentially a 23-year hiatus from trail running. Um, other than the occasional you know, short run around the house, but a huge passion of mine, which I know is one we share is backcountry hunting and it's particularly archery elk hunting, which is coming up right around the corner. So a lot of my current fitness efforts revolve around getting ready for hunting season. Maybe just to give some listeners a little context, because everybody's built differently. And I know we talk a lot about personal health on this. You know, I'm a I'm kind of a tall, lanky type. I'm 6'3", typically have around 180, 185, super long legs. I have always a lean at baseline type of person. I have occasionally fluctuated leaner than that. At my heaviest, a couple of years ago, I was working a more of a desk job and I, I did get up just over 200 pounds, which was pretty heavy for me and felt a little weird. But overall, I'm, you know, I, I've never, well, I shouldn't say never. I fluctuated how serious I take my fitness. Um, at baseline, I've always been relatively fit and do some resistance training, try to get in some hot yoga, but occasionally I'll go through some time periods where I really focus more on fitness. And it's kind of where I've been for about the last seven, eight months. So I know I'd sent you a few things. Do you, do you think it's worth talking about some of the like ways I grew up around some nutrition or do you have any yeah. questions right off the bat? 
Well, I think that I think that we'll get into that because you don't know this. You did a good job sort of setting up some talking points that you felt like would be relevant, which is always good to do and in going into these podcasts because like the worst thing is listening to a podcast and you can tell the two guys just like are winging this, right? They're just like having a random conversation. That's pointless. But I set up my own. <laughs> oh, perfect. You didn't, perfect. you didn't know this. But I think a lot of what you had highlighted will get woven in here. And as you're introducing yourself, I'm sort of smiling because we have kind of a, I'm just going to say interesting relationship in that we have history. Like we've known each other or about each yeah. other for quite a few years and we've done hikes where it's just you and I, but I wouldn't say we were like super close friends, but it's been, and I, I certainly don't like meet up with you and judge you or, but observationally I've seen you go through the changes that you're sort of highlighting in terms of your working career when you were, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but at one of your heavier weights and you felt uncomfortable there. And there's some other stuff I'm going to, I'm going to talk about here in a little bit. And then kind of where you're at now, maybe the most interesting and most ironic to me is I remember us talking and having a conversation earlier in this year, call it January, February, or something like that. You, me, and our good friend, Jack Lander, had yeah. kind of these text threads that we weren't all in the thread together, but Jack was texting you separately. He was texting me separately. You and I were texting and sort of what we had, we're all planning is we're like, well, let's, let's, let's do an ultra together. And I remember your words were, I don't like running ultras. I'm not a runner running for me is basically a way to stay in shape between X month and Y month before elk season. You know, so I can't promise I'm going to be doing, I think we were planning to do a, uh, a run over in November. I think it was around Smith's Rock or something like that over in Oregon. But anyway, you were kind of like, look, I'm probably hunting. I'm out. And here you are, you know, this many month, months later, still trail running. You've ran two ultras. And that's sort of is what's prompted this podcast. Because I want to talk about really two things within that and, and as it relates to your nutrition. So one is you did your first ultra. And I'm going to have you talk about what that was here in a minute. And felt like you really killed it both on your effort and the nutrition and everything. Can you talk specifically about that one, both kind of what got you interested in it on the nutrition end, what made you feel like you did such a phenomenal job paying attention to the fueling, what you did for fueling, but just exploring that. And then we'll kind of go into the other stuff in a minute. There was a lot there and you have a better memory than me because yeah, it got a little confusing with how we were talking to Jack, but if I could, let's, let's start with Jack because he's kind of a, a linchpin as to why I got lured into uh, doing these ultras. And so you, you've never had him on the podcast, right? No, but he's, he's slated to be on. Yeah, for sure. You should. Cause Hey, he's funny as hell and he's just such a cool story. So hopefully it'll be on, but for listeners that don't know Jack, he's uh, a buddy of ours lives in Oregon. And I don't know his whole story, but I know that a few years ago, and I think I have this mostly accurate, he hit 330 pounds and he's a pretty tall guy. He's probably 6'1", 6'2", I'm guessing. And the way I understand it, he just made some decision that it was time for him to lose a lot of weight. And I believe he gave himself the goal of losing a hundred pounds. And for reasons I don't exactly know, he decided to do it in large part through running and just became super committed. and you know, start signing up for ultras and I, you'll have to have him on to hear a story because I know he had a ton of failures as far as finishing long distance runs that he would sign up for, but Jack and I would occasionally be in touch and 
as I got to know him, I'm like, this is so impressive. Here's a guy who's you know, quite overweight and just worked his tail off and was super consistent. And the funny part is he reaches out to me about one of these races and he says, Hey, I think I found a good race that we could both do. I'm, he says, I'm going to sign up for the 50 miler, but they do have a 20 mile option. And I had to chuckle to myself because I'm like, at the time he probably was still like 285 and I, I, I'm like relatively healthy and lean. And, you know, most folks that look at me like, Oh, that's a pretty healthy, strong guy. And I'm like, this is hilarious that my buddy who outweighs me by like a hundred pounds is calling and saying like, Hey, I found an easy option for you. Well, I'm going to do the 50 miler. You can just do this 20. And I'm not, I'm not a very competitive person and it's not like true competition, but there was that moment where I was like, Holy shit. If Jack's going to do a 50 miler, I can, I can get off my ass and do a 20 miler. I can get ready for this. That's a good challenge. Um, and I like to have challenges for myself. So that was really the, the motivator. But then we got thrown a curveball a few weeks after committing to doing it, that particular race canceled. And so we looked at the calendar again and Jack got back to me. He's like, Hey, I found a different race over by hood river, Oregon called the Y East wonder. And he says, they only offer two lengths, a 50 miler and a 50 K. And for folks that don't want to do the math, 50 K is approximately 32 miles. And so all of a sudden I went from barely wanting to commit to a 20 miler to my only option being a 32 miler. And I was like, well, yeah, I got to, I got to live up to what I told myself I was going to do. So I decided to commit to doing this, this 50 K in late June in uh, Mount hood area. Yeah. So then I was like, I better get serious about a running and B nutrition. And obviously knowing you, I've listened to you both in person and on some podcasts and also just kind of keep my fingers on the pulse of a handful of folks in the in nutrition and fitness space. And so I had a decent idea of you know, things I should do. And being that I spent a lot of time in the woods over the last couple of years, I've been playing with my nutrition to see what works for me personally. And so I just needed to start testing that on some long runs. So the, the training part was super simple. I shouldn't say super simple, super simple to understand to execute takes more time, but it was just the classic start with shorter runs and keep building, building, building distance. And as I built that distance, um, once you get over a certain amount of time, as you know, you got to keep fuel in your body because you're going to, you're going to really bonk if you, you know, I can't run for five hours without some fuel in my system. So yeah, I just played with these different options, right? I shouldn't say played. I started with what I thought might work and didn't have to make a ton of adjustments. And I'm happy to get into some of those details about how I did that first 50 K. Yeah. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm most curious about is really two things. And I, I think that the first sort of bleeds into the second, you said that, you know, you do spend a lot of time in the woods, particularly in September when that, I mean, those September archery elk hunts are pretty active. It's not a deal where you're getting to a point and basically spending 99% of your time just behind binos. You're moving a lot. What did you play with? What did you find in your nutrition on that front that then bled over into your ultra training? Yeah. What I found is that I used to finish hunts or scouting days and be like pretty wiped out and have a lot of muscle soreness. And, and I was like, all right, well, let's start seeing what might make a difference. So I started drinking a lot more and particularly adding some electrolytes and trying to eat more and time some of my eating around the efforts. 
So if I knew I was going to have a big uphill slog for a while, I would get some sugary stuff in me ahead of that. If I knew I just put in a big effort and either I was going to sleep or I would be sitting on my butt for a few hours, try to get some protein in. And just those simple things really made a big difference. I was just coming out of hunts and scouting trips, feeling better, having more energy during the hunt from day to day. I could just get up and go put in big efforts more regularly than I ever had before. And so in general, what I learned about myself is I can not only from day to day, I do better with a lot of fuel, but even during the day, thankfully I'm able to eat and drink a lot and it doesn't upset my stomach and I can just kind of keep going. And you know, I know a lot of people have GI issues, uh, really struggle with eating in particular, but for the most part, that works pretty well for me. Yeah. And I think one of the things that you had said there is a key piece of just like, of just general advice from a nutrition standpoint alone, you will, you can do just about anything and get through a single day's effort, right? Like you can eat just yeah. about anything, go on a single hunt and be fine, but really going as, as the days continue to go on and on and on, or the time that you're engaged in an activity grows. So, you know, as you go from like work exercising for an hour to being out all day, that timing piece plays a big role in your ability to, to sort of manage the same energy levels as you get deeper into the activity as you did when you first began. So, yeah, I think that that's a, a an excellent point. And so you played with that some during hunts and then transitioned that or you used that same idea whenever you started getting into the ultras. So. Yep. What did your nutrition look like for that first 30K? Because I know when we spoke, you said, I just feel like that played a gigantic role in how well you did because you placed. What was your placing in that? That was, I took 21st out of about 250. So a top 10% finish, which was shocking to me. I wasn't, I had that far exceeded my expectations. I was, you know, hoping for a top 50%. I would have been thrilled with the top 30%. So to finish in the top 10% was great. And yeah, so to kind of dive into that nutrition piece, I kind of break it up into two parts. One is like the pre-race nutrition, and then obviously like the during the race nutrition. And for pre-race, I didn't, one of the things it is just not make a ton of changes. I eat pretty healthy overall at baseline, but I didn't want to go trying to make drastic changes. The only thing I did a little bit different is for about the week before the race, I would try to have some additional carbs at dinner, just little bigger helpings of rice or pasta, but nothing crazy. I eat a fair amount of carbs anyhow, uh, but try to, most of those are around rice or a lot of sourdough bread. I eat it as well. So I didn't make any major pre-race changes to my nutrition. Um, I will talk about my breakfast here in a little bit, but during the race, the system that I'd used on some longer runs and hunts is just really pretty basic, which is a lot of uh, electrolyte drink. In fact, only electrolyte drink and not water. So tailwind. Uh, both the caffeinated and the uncaffeinated is one I've gone with. And then I take a little, like a snack, a Ziploc snack size. It's just simple carb mix. So it's got some cereals, pretzels, a couple fruits, like dried fruits in there, just to really, it's kind of dry, but it's real easy to digest. And then some gummy bears, which I think everybody will know where I got that hot tip from. And then a couple like energy bars. I had a Laura bar and an RX bar. Oh, and then a few gel packs. Like I think I used the Cliff Bar gel packs that are caffeinated, like 50 milligrams of caffeine. And I use those for real, just like in my mind, short bursts that are coming up. 
So if I want a little extra energy for a, a hill climber, that type of thing, that's when I, or if I'm just feeling really tired, I'll take one of those gel packs. So that's what I had going into the race. And, and I just was really disciplined about making sure I drank and keep a little bit of sugar in my body, either with that, that simple carb mix or the gummy bears. It's kind of like a steady drip. And then I would eat the, the bars just as I felt hungry. And that first race, there all there were also aid stations. So there was an aid station at mile ten, an aid station, aid station at mile twenty, and another at mile twenty-five. And I just figured I would eat based on my hunger level um, at those, and that's what I did. I got to mile ten and crushed some oranges and I think a banana, uh, some like they had small peanut butter and jelly sandwich squares, a few of those. May have had a cookie there, but you know, Ada, you're eating quickly, but felt great. After that, and when I got to mile 20, essentially did the exact same thing. The only difference in mile 20 is when I refilled my water, I switched to the caffeinated tailwind, just knowing that's several hours into a race at that point. I thought the caffeine might give me a little bit of an extra boost. So again, had my, my stomach felt great. The only, the only thing that was a little bit of a curveball at the 20-mile aid station is I made the mistake of sitting down in a camp chair I and mean, just that massive change in how angle of my legs, I did start to feel a little bit of cramping kind of up my thighs on my quads. And so I, I hopped right back up um, just to avoid any cramping from sitting down. And then again, got to that aid station at mile 25, had some more oranges, maybe a chalk PB and J again, I think, um, you know, things were getting a little fuzzy in my head at that point. It, it's an interesting feeling. I don't know if you've experienced this, but it certainly wasn't like hallucinating or I felt very clear and great, but I was so focused on just the running piece. It was, it was almost like a meditative state in a lot of points of that race. It was actually really helpful, but yeah, I just kept, kept that really disciplined approach of drinking water. Um, I didn't set a timer on my watch or anything that had been some advice I'd been given by somebody. Um, I don't wear a watch. I just was trying to uh, run at what felt right there, like the right pace for me and just it's like, okay, just sent the mental clock to take sips on my, my water. And, and through training, I'd realized that I drink about a liter of electrolyte drink per 10 miles. So that's what I had allocated for myself. So first ultra top 10 finish, you're regularly basically just have a kind of a slow drip of nutrition throughout the whole deal, regularly taking in electrolytes, water, did a great job. Then comes ultra number two, which was the stand hope 30 K kind of in central Idaho and felt like, okay, rinse, repeat. I did so well in the first one. I'm just going to repeat the exact same protocol in the second one. Things didn't go quite a well, quite, quite as good. And this is one of the things that you, you know, you'd reached out and said, Hey, this was my experience. Would love to hear your thoughts. And we sort of talked through that. But talk, talk a little bit about what happened the second time, which I think will then go into a couple of things that you highlighted specifically that went wrong, some questions you had, and we can dive into those too. Yeah. So just for the listener's sake, a couple of things that might be important to contrast and as we're talking about these two races. So that first race, the Y East 50K, so 32 miles, it's got about 4,000 vertical feet of gain throughout the 30 some miles. And the low point of that race is approximately 4,200 feet above sea level. And the high points like 6,000 something. And it's more of like rolling train all on pretty good trails. And I just wanted to put that out there because uh, 
the Stanhope race is very different terrain. It's you know, 30K. There was a 30K, a 60K, and a 100-mile version, but it's known as being one of the most rugged races, and it's the highest race in Idaho. So the starting line is 7,200 feet, and the highest point of the race hits 11,000 feet in elevation. So dealing with a lot different elevation, and the, the terrain itself, the first three miles or so of the Stanhope are pretty good trails that you can run on with good footing, and then you get some a good steep climb, and then the next plateau, the trails in this like really marshy meadow. And when I say trail, there's not really much of a trail. They have to flag it. You can't really tell what kind of footing you're going to land on. So you're taking pretty big risks to try to actually run on that stuff. So it is more of a, a hike, both up the steep part. And then when you hit that plateau and way more variation to how much your muscles are moving, how like the, your ankles are absorbing, just landing in different angles the whole time it's way more intense i would say as far as on those like just the small muscles throughout your legs and then a big high climb to that eleven thousand foot pass in the mountains which is up in like rock and snow fields and then it's just steep off the backside and again big rock fields you're going by these high mountain lakes and the trail is very inconsistent as far as it's way more technical running i guess is one way to put it like you have to be real comfortable running on loose rock, steep rock, going over boulders, even on the lower sections of the trail, a lot of deadfall. So really in that Stanhope, only the first three miles and the last three miles was the trail in good enough shape that you're like, oh, I can, I can run this. And it feels like a pretty normal trail run. So I just wanted to put that out there. Interestingly, and this was great to compare for nutrition. The weather was almost identical at each race. We starting in the morning was like high forties. And then it warmed up to about 75 degrees by the time I finished each race. One difference is, strangely, that Central Idaho race, an area known for being pretty high and dry, had quite a bit of humidity. And obviously, being that high, we're out of the trees a lot and up in the sunshine, where the one over in Oregon, it's really a forested race. So it was in the shade the vast majority of the time. So environmentally, those are some of the, the differences. But nutritionally, yeah, my plan was to do pretty much the exact same thing. But I, I wasn't quite thinking detailed enough regarding my breakfast plan. So to jump into that, back at the East 50K, I was staying at a friend's cabin and we had to be to the race, like starting area, well, not to the starting area, to the gathering area at like seven something in the morning to be shuttled on a bus out to the starting line. And we were going to start at 8 a.m. So at my friend's cabin, I ate my normal breakfast, which is four eggs, two pieces of four eggs, a little bit of elk sausage, two pieces of avocado toast. I ate that about six, six fifteen in the morning. And then I knew I'd start feeling a little bit of hunger and want a little more fuel in my system. So I, I ate a, uh, a little bit more on the shuttle ride out to the race difference being one small difference, but maybe a big one. This is where I'd love any thoughts you may have is for the stand hope. I was just camping out of my truck and at home, I typically wake up and I don't eat for the first hour or two I'm awake. And so I was like, oh, maybe that's what I should do. It just seemed like the normal thing to do is delay my breakfast. So I didn't eat that breakfast until like 20 minutes before the race started. So on my tailgate, I cooked up, same thing, my four eggs, two pieces of avocado toast, some elk sausage, and ate those. And then it was kind of a... 
the logistics of that race start were a little weird. So I had to actually kind of hustle to get my bib and like barely made it to the starting line in time. In fact, I didn't even have time to take a leak before I got started, which I don't know if that would have any impact on things, but it was not a super comfortable way to start a race, having to go to the bathroom and go for, try to cover some miles before that was an option. So that was really the biggest change. I went in with all the same food in my pack. I actually took a little bit more food in my pack, but all the same stuff for the Stanhope, just because there were fewer aid stations. And I knew it was going to be higher exertion, but I had all the exact same, same stuff there. So let me stop you there. What was the, you know, like what you, bigger picture, what do you notice was the greatest difference between the outcomes of both race, right? You, I mean, oh, you yeah. basically, you basically floated through ultra number one came to ultra number two and really felt like almost from the get-go started having more noticeable issues than you did in the first one. Yeah. So the first one, the only issues I had is the last five, six miles, which were downhill. I was starting to feel a little bit of cramping in my legs, but it would quickly go away with just small changes to my pace. And like I said, that wasn't until mile 25, 26 going downhill at the Stanhope, I started feeling even at the first aid station, I noticed my appetite wasn't as high as it normally is, but I attributed that fact. I ate breakfast later and I, you know, it was the first aid station was only five and a half miles in. So I was like, this makes sense. I'm not that hungry yet. And so I kept going. My pace was great. My, I tried to go out a little bit faster because I, I'm, I know my strength isn't going uphill. So I figured if I could make it to the top of the summit, moving pretty quick, the rest of the race, I'm like, oh, coming downhill is not as bad. And even though I'm not a super fast technical downhill runner, like that's why I need to be fast on the uphill. But shortly before making that summit at mile nine ish, all of a sudden I took a step and had a horrible cramp in my left calf. And I was like, Oh, this, this is weird. I've never had this kind of cramp in my left calf. I took about 10 more steps and had a matching cramp hit my right calf. And so I had to really hobble to the top and I was like, well, the good news is it's all downhill. My calves should, they'll probably be fine here. Just kind of move gently down this, off the downhill portion of the race. And then the cramping just intensified both of my calves and started to move up my legs into my quads and around towards my groin on kind of the insides of my, my upper legs. And I was just fighting cramping. And at the same time, I also noticed as I was going downhill, like I just wasn't feeling the same level of hunger. Like as I was even on the way up, I was tossing in gummy bears and a couple of them I even spit out part way up. So I was like, gosh, I wasn't, didn't, didn't have an upset stomach. It just didn't feel like my body wanted a lot of food. And I, I tried to be diligent about drinking for sure. But I was just like, I, I never felt light on my feet. I was just kind of slogging the whole way up there. And unfortunately, those, those cramps persisted the entire, the last nine miles of the race, which is mostly downhill with one section of about a mile, mile and a half uphill stretch there and got really, really bad at one point. And, um, at some point I talk about the worst of it when I took a fall at mile 15, that was put me into a whole new world of pain that I had not experienced before. You had somebody help you up, right? Like did some gal. Yeah. So, I mean, by this point I had gone past the last uphill and there was some bunch of deadfall and I was just, it was super frustrating because I knew I wasn't going as fast as I could because my muscles simply were cramping up so bad. I had to keep adjusting my pace to match what I could do, which is oftentimes just a slow walk. And then I was 
you know, so I would try to ease back in and feel like the muscle was loosening up. I'd try to increase my speed and sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't, or I'd just take a off center step on something and boom, that muscle would cramp up again. Man, then I finally get to about mile 15 and where I, there's, I know that essentially from here down the trails in pretty good shape. So I started jogging along and not at a fast pace, but I'm actually jogging, feeling good. And I just didn't get my left toe up far enough, must've caught something in the trail and I full-blown supermaned it down the trail. I mean, I remember like in slow motion watching my trekking poles fly out of my hands in front of me and then just completely eating shit onto my forearms on the trail. And as like as kind of the dust settled, I realized I'm sitting on my butt perpendicular to the trail. And I'm hearing myself kind of make this moaning noise. Like, ah, and I look down and both my toes are pointed straight away from me, like a diver trying to enter the water and not make a splash. And my legs are fully locked and I could see my calves just look like two giant bulges, just both of them are completely locked. And I could feel that my upper legs, my quads were in full cramp as well. And you know, like when you have a cramp, especially a calf cramp, your human instinct is to tip your toes back towards you to stretch out that calf. So when, when my brain sent that signal for my toes to move, nothing happened. It just stayed pointed away from me, which was an alarming feeling because I never had that before. I was just like, what the, what the hell do I do? I, I had no idea. I'm just laying there and I was like, oh, I still have three miles. I know I'm safe, but I'm in a lot of pain. I have no idea how my body's going to respond. And a woman who was coming down the trail shortly behind me stopped and asked if I needed help. And I just asked her to retrieve my trekking poles, which she did. And then I just sat there and she offered to stay with me. I'm like, no, go ahead. You know, eventually I'll be fine, I, I think. And then a few more minutes went by and another woman came up behind me and she, she also asked if I was okay. And I was like, I think so. Can you stand here for a second? I'm just going to see if I can get myself standing using my trekking poles. By that point, I was able to, to move my feet again. And I stood up and she I told her to go on her way and she was fighting awful back cramps as well. And I started just kind of hobbling down the trail and it felt a lot like earlier in the race where I was having muscle cramps hit here and there. Surprisingly, they, they went away almost a little bit easier. And I was able to go from a slow hobble to like a normal walking pace and then started jogging. And I was able to finish the race at a decent, decent jogging pace, came across the finish line. And, um, a buddy of mine who got kind of got me into this stuff many years ago, he was mountain biker and trail runner. He had a post-race celebration, if you will, that he would always drop down and do 10 push-ups at the end of any race he did. And he's a buddy I don't get to see very often anymore. He's about 10 years older than me. So I've kind of taken that upon myself. So I dropped down to do my, my 10 push-ups. And when I stood up, my legs locked up again and I damn near fell down, which felt a little foolish. I'm sure some people in the crowd thought I was, that's what you get for trying to show off and do push-ups, which it's not, it's not trying to show off. It was just, you know. Yeah, respect for your friend. So I'm curious, in, in your mind's eye, what do you feel like happened? Well, so there's a few things I think it could be, or obviously a combination. One is certainly that eating the breakfast at a, a different time. I wonder if my, my stomach was just ha- having that much food still in it and trying to digest while I was running created some situation where my body was was absorbing water way faster and I just didn't have enough in me to hydrate my muscles. So I was 
So I ran into the cramping issues. Environmentally, it was much steeper terrain, higher elevation, and more humidity than the first race. So those could all contribute to faster muscle fatigue. Third, I do think that morning, I, I didn't mention this earlier, I drank a little bit more water than I normally do. I still had the electrolytes, but I drank more water. And I wonder if I just got my electrolyte balance out of whack a little bit. And then the other factor, which I also didn't mention is I had had a pretty deep tissue massage on the Thursday before the race, really focused on my legs and they felt really, really loose. And on the first race, I'd also had a massage the week previous, but I had it on Wednesday, but it was a much more superficial massage. And they use a lot of these like scraping tools that apparently work on like your fascia. So yeah, the, my muscles had been like had some muscle therapy and two very different types of muscle therapy before. So all those things, I, I don't know which of those, I know there was some nutrition stuff, like I said, just because I didn't want, my body didn't want to eat, wasn't as hungry as it typically is on my, my long races. So that certainly was a piece of it. The environmental stuff and the massage is just really a question mark that, you know, I'd love your input if you have any thoughts, but I expected the uphill of the Stanhope, the first nine miles to be tough. And it was, and my body only felt like a little bit worse than I expected, but then having this awful cramping and not being able to shake, it was a new experience. And yeah, thankfully I still had a decent finish, hit my goal time. But it was frustrating because I know the last half of the race, I really left a lot on the table just because I couldn't move well. So first and foremost, least popular opinion is it could have been an anomaly, right? You just had a bad day. It was, you know, nothing could necessarily be attributed to it. Nothing could fix it. It was just a bad day. I mean, there's there are reports all over the place of people who do you know, ultra running professionally where they just absolutely, you know, crush every goal that they have set for themselves during a race. And then other times they completely fall apart and there is no rhyme or reason. It was just a tough day. What I think is it was probably a synergy of a lot of things happening all at one time. I think environmentally you were at a higher altitude and there were greater, there's greater humidity. So now you're combating this, kind of this dynamic of, you know, we, we often think of hydration in terms of sweating or peeing, but breathing is also mm. a way that we lose a lot of fluid. So obviously higher altitude, more respirations, greater loss of fluid through breath. So you're, you're losing fluid in a, mon a number of different ways. Part of that being altitude Two is exposure, right? You're, you're in the sun, the whole deal. So you're naturally going to be sweating more, losing more water, greater energy expenditure and that as well same with humidity wetter climate even though it's obviously moisture in the air versus like being in the everglades or something like that right also you end up sweating more you lose more fluid so on and so forth so i think that 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 wasn't helping you second to that would be the 20 minute versus the two hour time span between eating breakfast so a you generally so one of the, why does Kyle always say gummy bears? Because gummy bears is essentially like hooking you up directly to an IV of, of, of nutrition, of fuel. When you eat a mixed meal, mixed being identified as, you know, multiple different macronutrient groups, carbohydrates, fats, and protein all present at once, 
that meal is going to take somewhere in the neighborhood of, and there's a lot of factors involved here, but call it two to potentially five hours from the point of consumption to actually giving you fuel to, to, for that process to happen. That is, as you correctly identified, naturally going to delay your appetite. So you're not going to want anything. And essentially, your gut is sending signals to your brain saying, look, you can put stuff down the chute if you want, but we know right now the tank's full. We've got nothing to do with this. And that's a combination of, yes, the type of meal you ate, the timing in which you ate the meal, plus the fact that you're active is all going to say, we'll just wait a little bit. We don't, we can't deal with this right now. So you're, you're dealing with that too. The third factor is because of that, it prevented you from taking in foods that were higher in electrolytes and hydrating. So you talk about the first ultra compared to the second. You went to the aid stations in the first and you're able to eat oranges, you're able to eat bananas, you're able to eat PB&Js, you're able to take teal and you're able to do all of these things. But that delay in food, lack of appetite, whatever you want to call it, chicken or the egg type of a deal you weren't able to take food at aid stations. You weren't able to take food in at regularity. You were trying, but your gut was just saying, look, you try all you want. We've got nowhere to put this, so you're going to have to wait. And that looks like loss of appetite, putting food in your mouth and like the gummy bears and just spitting them out because you've got, you've got nothing that you yeah. can, you know, your, your brain's just saying, no, absolutely not. Yeah, which makes sense because my stomach wasn't upset. It was just like, oh man, this, why, why are you doing this? All of that's going to bleed over into the cramps, right? So we know that, you know, from a dehydration standpoint, as little as 2% loss will typically cause an athlete to crumble. 2% of like your, of, of, of loss of, of your body weight and from loss of hydration, right? So if you're unable to take stuff in, plus you're in an environment that's basically setting you up for complete failure on the hydration side of things, it is truly a culmination of the worst possible scenario. And it makes a lot more sense to, for me to hear you sort of lay out the whole thing. It makes a lot more sense to me as to why you started experiencing some of the issues that you did. So it sounds like, as I've been thinking, I, I would have been way better off having that meal two, two and a half hours ahead of time. You know, cause I, I know at home, I eat that same meal for breakfast most days. And about two and a, two, two and a half hours later, I start feeling slightly hungry again. So I yeah. just know that's about the pace my body wants more food. Yeah. So the, you know, the rule of thumb when you're setting up a nutrition plan for someone doing an ultra is two to three to four hours before the race, they can have anything they want from a meal standpoint. They can eat something that's a little more hearty, a little more rich. 30 minutes out from the run, you want to take roughly 45 to 60 grams of fast acting carbohydrates. So a tailwind drink, glass of orange juice, some grapes, some gummy bears, you know, Choose the du jour item of, of your choice. But the rule of thumb is because of that three hours out, you, you've got plenty of time for that to go from food to actual usable fuel. Yeah. 30 minutes out, the type of fuel really matters, right? So doing something that is fast acting, like we talked about, where it's essentially hooking you up to an IV drip is not going to make a difference because as soon as you eat it, it's metabolized and put into your fuel stores. And so you get to the, you get to the line basically ready to go fuel stores max maximized and you know ready to go but you said something key like the meal you describe which is relatively high protein high fat yeah is quote less than ideal quote less than optimal even two hours before but and this is the this is the this is the foundation and underlying principle in all of nutrition you've tried it and it works good for you 
So that rules all optimal advice I could ever give is if you've tried it, even if it's not quote optimal and it works great for you, do not mess with it. (laughs) If you find something that works for you, it doesn't matter what I say or what you've heard on here. If it doesn't line up with the number, it doesn't matter. You tried it. It worked good for you. That's exactly what you should do from everything from the type of food you eat to the quantity to the time before you eat it should match on, you know, quote, race day or event day or hike day or whatever you want to call it. Makes a lot of sense for sure. And it was interesting. You made the point about possibly just having a bad day. So after I finished that first race, um, I was just excited and got to hang around the finish line for a while. And it was really interesting because I got to watch a lot of you know veteran runners that have done a lot of races coming in. Some of them had great races and some of them had terrible races. I was talking with a woman, I don't know, let's say she's, I, remember, I can't remember the exact number. She'd done five or 10 or maybe even more ultras. And she had such horrible stomach cramps on that YE's 50K that she thought she was maybe had torn a muscle in her, in her abdomen or was like having a medical issue. And it was just GI issues as it turned out. And she's like, like I did most everything the exact same. And this is somebody who's done a bunch. So that's kind of an extreme example, but there were other people you could tell they were just like, they just wasn't their day. And I guess that could be both nutritionally or something biomechanically for some people that, you know, they just have a, a small muscle problem. They don't realize it's there before the race starts and they just you know, can't run an optimal race because of that. So it's, it definitely, I've learned on these longer distance races. If you have there's something wrong in your system if you run long enough it will show up yeah and yeah whether whether it be nutritionally or or biomechanically one thing that always comes up on here is like the 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 phrase it depends it's the most annoying it's the most annoying answer i can give it's the least helpful answer i can give but it does and the 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 topic of ultra running and i would also put high altitude mountaineering in this is it's very much like the the problems you experience are very much going to depend on a lot of factors. So we'll use this scenario of GI distress. That could be anything from too much salt to not enough salt to too much water, not enough water, too much fuel, not enough fuel, wrong type of fuel, wrong timing of fuel. There are a lot of variables involved there that could pop up. But the 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 underlying factor and the thing that's helpful to note in here for anyone listening is you should be able to do these things without issue at all. Having issues is not just the byproduct of doing this. You should be able to finish them feeling like Josh has described feeling in his first, which is just great from start to finish, top 10%. He's not caring about zone two and zone three and all of that stuff. He's just doing things that feel good. You should be able to do that. So if you if you notice like, you're, you're, you've been following something for years and you can't get through one of these major events without an issue. There is almost always a reason, but what's causing that reason could be a lot of different variables. Yeah. I've been thinking about this since running the trace and I've got a couple of just like random questions that have popped in my head that I thought you might be able to help I with. Can I run a few by you? Yeah, of course. Let's do it. So being that I'm you know, a lot, not a professional runner, I don't have a perfect schedule. Like I run it in my training runs at different times of the day. And I've noticed if I run in the morning, whether that be fasted before breakfast or after a breakfast, usually I have zero stomach issues. I mean, I'm, these are, you know, typical, like let's call them five to 10 mile runs, 
But if I run closer to like 4 p.m. or later in the day, and I've whether I've eaten recently or not, I tend to get like tons of bloating and gas and like burping and farting. And I, I can't figure it out. And I know that's not a lot of information for you to go off of, but anything that comes to mind that I might want to try to to help me try to solve that riddle? Yeah, I, I, my guess would be that it's the accumulation of food over the day still in the gut, right? Like, so we talked earlier that food could take anywhere from call it two to five hours to completely digest by 4 p.m. You've probably eaten two times in a snack or two or, or what have you. It's still there, right? It still is continuing to process. Whereas if you run in the morning, let's say fasted, it could potentially have been 12 to 14 hours until your last meal. Everything is gone by that point or at least at least processed into fuel and moved down into your lower GI tract, right? So that is the most likely scenario. One thing that has come up in the past with people is if they'll, you know, they'll eat a snack, call it at 3pm, they'll go for a run at 430 or five, and they'll have some reflux. And that's almost always tied to that snack at three or four. So you got the option to either a skip it, or B, talk about like what we did 30 minutes before race, eat something that's going to digest really quick. So that's not sitting in your gut whenever you get ready to go. That all makes sense. Also, you know, funny enough, during the, the Y East race, the first one, I was listening to a podcast while I was running. So I actually did a mix of about a third of the time I was listening to podcasts, a third of the time, some music, and a third of the time, just not listening to anything, just you know, had, had my headphones out and enjoying the race sometimes chatting with the other racers, but I happened to be listening to a podcast that had the NBA player, Chris Paul on there. And it was about nutrition. And he was saying when he went to one of his teams, it was the first time they had a, like a team nutritionist and they did a big like blood panel to figure out what foods might be a good fit for him and what were not. And, you know, I'm sure being the NBA, it was a very expansive and very expensive blood test, but do you have any recommendations for somebody like me who's like pretty interested in this kind of stuff but doesn't want to break the bank to just be like hey is there a kind of simple blood test food test out there that a guy could do to just in case there's any major red flags that would be like oh josh you should avoid tomatoes or olives or whatever it might be yeah that's a that's, a, that's an excellent question because you're right some some of those tests can be pros, cost prohibitive yes so the the best test that i know of is to eat foods and then stop eating the ones that don't sit well with you. <laughs> now, the the flip side of the coin is this, and there's two reasons that I say that. There are a number of tests you can get. You could even potentially go to your, you know, your local allergist, right? Get a skin prick test. It's going to tell you a number of foods that, you know, quote, do sit well with you or don't. And Almost always when I would meet Pete with people and they would say, well, I, I stopped eating these foods and they're almost always really good nutrient dense foods. I'd say, well, why? Well, I took the skin prick test and it said that I, you know, I, I had a, a response to them. I said, well, when you used to eat those, did you have any negative response? Did it cause you to bloat up? Did you have any diarrhea? Did you have a bunch of GI? Did you have any quality? Did it alter the quality of your life? Well, no. Well, then don't stop eating them. <laughs> Right. And so that goes into this. And this is this is maybe more supportive than my subjective thoughts. We don't really know of any history or any 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 test out there that says, yes, you should absolutely avoid these foods when they say that they don't, regardless of how they make they don't sit well with you, regardless of how they make you feel. 
aside from things like the biopsy of the gut where someone clearly has a gluten allergy and their their gut response, that looks a lot different than the general idea of, oh, wheat is quote unquote inflammatory. Now, with that said, like personally, I know you had made, you had noticed some stuff in your own diet. You'd change those because of GI issues and those got better. That's the perfect example of how to handle something like that, right? Like you noticed these foods cause me issue with consistency. Wonder what happens when I take them out. It's pretty low hanging fruit for me to remove these to feel better. You did and you felt better, but there's nothing that would broadly suggest for everyone. We should all avoid this column of foods and then not worry about this column of foods. I'll tell you this too. There used to be a certification that you could get as a dietitian that went into this, educating people. You give them a panel, educating them on foods that show up as a high response to that. The academy took that certification away because it was such a, it was such a wild west. Like we don't know if this is true, so they removed it. They removed the certification. So no, I think the best thing that a person could do is. If you notice something doesn't sit well with you, don't eat it. And if you notice that things do sit well with you, but everyone is on social media screaming inflammatory this and that, ignore it and eat what you like, what sits well with you. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. Back to the topic we were discussing with elevation. Have you learned anything about, obviously, like mountaineers, they're going to climb super high peaks. They spend time at high elevation to get their body acclimated before they go up to even higher elevation. Specific to hydration, do you know anything like, hey, it's recommended that if you're going to be, like, let's just use the case of that Stanhope race, that it started at approximately 5,000 feet higher than where I live. I camped the night before, so I'd slept at, you know, roughly that elevation and then did the race. I do know there were some racers that had gone out a week before to start sleeping at that high elevation. Any, anything from your education that talks specifically about your body's hydration system at higher elevation and how long it takes to acclimate? Yeah. So it goes, it goes back to exactly what we'd said earlier, where the, the biggest issue is going to be a, you're going to have, well, overall, you're going to have increase in fluid needs. You're going to have an increased need in hydration. You're going to have to create a, a greater awareness to that. Now, a part of that is because it's going to, because of the, the, the compensation that happens in your kidneys and you end up peeing more, sometimes medication causes that too, that you can take to try to offset being at higher altitude. So you're, you're going to have a, a greater urinary loss and you're going to have a greater loss in terms of respiration rate. So th- the whole need goes up. How long does it take to ap- acclimate is kind of across the board and going to be strongly dependent on a lot of factors, but by and large, it takes a couple of weeks. Now, you can go out early and acclimate. We had the folks over at Uphill Athlete on here and talked a full episode about this. And there's a protocol that you can do for heat training to acclimate, even if you don't have the ability to go to higher altitudes ahead of time, like to go out there a week or two ahead of time to to do that. The other thing that you might consider is, so there's in the ultra training, in the marathon training or whatever you want to call it community, there's the topic of hyperhydration, loading with sodium, and everything is centered around trying to make sure that you fill those stores as high as possible. So the likelihood of dehydration 
is less. Right. I don't think that you need to necessarily go that route. But what I do think is wise is paying more attention to make sure that you do show up as hydrated as possible. So you're, you're drinking more water in the week leading into that. I think you maximize your carbohydrate intake because for every one unit of carbohydrate that's stored in the muscle, four units of water follow it. So mm. one of the best ways to maximize some of that hydration status in your cells is increase carb content, increase water content along with that. There's even a, uh, so there's a product called glycerol that you can buy. You can mix in water, drink it. It's going to absorb more water too. So it really kind of depends on where, you know, people, how intense someone wants to get into this. But the best thing that you could do is show up not dehydrated. I don't yeah. think you need to load sodium. I don't think you need to avoid it, but I don't think you need to load it ahead of time and then just show up you know, not in a dehydrated state because yes, you will have greater losses at higher altitudes. Well, yeah, I'll start, I'll start testing that because we're about to get into hunting season with just the preloading of carbs and, and hydration a little, a little more. In your notes, I saw where you had put, like you started taking creatine recently. I had someone reach out to me on rock slide and said, Hey, I've been loading on creatine I would like to stop it before I go on this 10 day sheep hunt. They lived in the Northwest territories. How nice you get to hunt that every year, but they do. <laughs> I want to stop it ahead of time, but I'm afraid that the water losses from stopping it will dehydrate me. Should I be concerned? And my answer to him was no. And I told him the exact same thing. The best thing you could do is if you're wanting to stop it, go ahead and stop it. And then just make sure that you keep your carb intake up. And if you really wanted to load it, get some of that. You can find glycerol, glycerin, or anything like that on Amazon. Take that with it, and that will also increase your uptake. You have such a delicate system in your body to offset electrolyte imbalances and sodium concentration and water. You're, it, so you can't, to a point, you can't load sodium a ton. Your your body is going to want to get rid of it when it yeah. starts seeing that, look, you're on a recovery week from training, you're not sweating as much, you're loading a bunch of sodium, you're loading a bunch of water, it's going to want to get rid of it. There's only so much you can take in. Carbohydrate intake and glycerol is a bit different. If it's there, it's going to attach it to the point of where you'll have you know, pretty high level marathoners talk about feeling fluffy on the starting line because they're so saturated with carbohydrate and so saturated with water. As you start exercising, then your body begins to use those stores. The water starts to yeah. bleed off and that obviously goes away, but that effect is from that. And I think the best thing in most of nutrition is not so much, especially when you're going into the woods or you're doing something like this is not so much what do I need to be doing on the hunt? It's to show up in a good state. <laughs> sure. Show up rested. Don't be trying to execute, you know, peak peak week of training the day before you go. And you haven't been paying attention to your nutrition and you don't really drink water too much. And, you know, like you're wanting to come out there and be super dialed. The best thing you could go in is, you know, be ready. Make sure you're you're eating foods that are rich in iron uh, if you're going into a high altitude environment right the, the greater the iron stores you got the more oxygen you can process the less likely you're going to suffer any sort of consequence with altitude go in really hydrated go in well fueled make sure your legs are rested it, you've said a couple of times well, that makes sense to me a lot of this is pretty logical yeah and and sort of to you the way that you treat a watch right we get into the 
zone two and my heart rate, my lactate threshold. And you're just like, I just run at a comfortable pace. And if I'm, if I notice that I'm too taxed, I know I'm too fast. I slow down. If I notice that I feel like I've got some more in me, then I'll, I'll speed it up. It seems pretty common sense to me, you know? And I I think that you're, I think we're all going to be far better off taking that approach versus really analyzing the depths of stuff sometimes. Sure. So there's another piece I think you're going to find interesting and hopefully listeners will as well as the post-race nutrition I actually had some big differences here as well. So that first race where I felt good, I finished the race, crushed it. I love these grapefruit Rattler beers, super high in sugar, but that was it's like my post exertion treat to myself and in general. So I had one of those and I, my wife was there. She had some like chocolate covered pretzels and stuff. I had some sugar snacks and I was waiting for buddies to finish the race. And I didn't eat anything super substantial right after that first 50 K. You know, I was snacking the whole time, but it wasn't for a few hours that we went and like had a, like a proper meal. And even then I, it was, it wasn't huge. And so I, as I talked about, I felt pretty good on that race. The next few days I was very sore and I was tired. Now contrast that at Stanhope, where I was just struggling with horrible cramps, the worst cramps of my life for nine miles, like could barely walk at the finish line over the next few hours. I ate three cheeseburgers, a bunch of potato chips, drank a few beers, sat in a cold Creek and six hours after that race finished, I went on a two mile, I, I looked at this Canyon. I was like, that, that area just looks kind of elky to me. I'm going to go exploring. So I went on like an uphill two, two, two and a half mile off trail hike, same day of the race. And my legs felt better than they did for the next, you know, after the, the 50 K a few months before where the race felt way better. So it was just an interesting Total vice versa experience. And the only thing I did different is I ate a bunch of cheeseburgers after the second race. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the greatest misnomers in nutrition is that our body recognizes what we're eating. In reality, it doesn't. It's recognizing nutrients. So in other words, we could translate cheeseburgers and potato chips into sodium, carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. You got ample amounts, right? And so the body recovers well. You, when, when thinking about training and people doing long runs, they'll, you know, get into 20 miles, 23 miles, they'll get into these really long runs. And their perception is I may as well cancel my day because I'm going to get done with that and just be smoked out the rest of the day. No energy. You should not feel like that. If you're fueling well, both pre, during and after a training session or a run, you should still have enough gas in the tank to do whatever it else is, is that you want the rest of the day. If you're not, A, you're probably missing the boat somewhere. B, that's really exciting when you think about the fact that there's a lot of potential that you haven't tapped into or some, yeah. you know, an individual hasn't tapped into. So, yeah, I think that, you know, awesome recap. And, you know, although I wish the race would have gone different for you, I'm glad that it didn't because it gave us a great conversation to have. And if people wanted to reach out to you, where is the best place to do that? I suppose Instagram. I've been a very sporadic user for the last year, but. I think I'm josh.kuntz, K-U-N-T-Z, on Instagram. So feel free to DM me. The other thing, yeah, I'd be welcome to chat with people about that. I was going to mention one other thing to you, which there's somebody, I don't, you might even know him. He's friends with Jack Lander, who we talked about at the start of this. Duke Wastany, who works for First Light. Have you talked to Duke ever? I have talked to Duke. As a matter of fact, right before... 
they did one of the death hikes. I sat down with Duke and Paul when Paul was there. We had a, you know, we had a brief conversation, but I know Duke is basically an ultra animal if I've heard right. He is. And he's also crazy humble, but the cool part is he and his wife each won the individual 30 K for men and women. She took fourth overall. Duke was just a couple minutes off of the course record, just crushed it. So like for perspective to show how incredible this guy is, he finished. So I finished the Stanhope in 28th place out of like 150. He beat me by an hour and a half. Like that's just a huge amount of time. Yeah. Um, he just, he's incredible and they're super nice, but it's pretty cool that both as a couple, they're, they're both such elite athletes. The hardest part of, would be to try to, I'm sure, lure him into actually talking about himself because he's so humble. But that guy's an incredible. I'll have to see if I can sneak him on. But Josh, yeah. I appreciate you coming and, and sharing the insights and the stories, asking great questions. And I'll link your Instagram since you uh, don't know it, which is probably a good thing in today's society. But appreciate you coming on and look forward to following more of you on your, your ultras. Yeah, well, uh, I appreciate you putting these podcasts out. There's been a lot of good info. I, I like listening to them. Best of luck to you this hunting season. Hopefully Likewise. we can get out for a, a hike or at least share some pictures. Likewise, it'd be fun. All right, man. Take care. See you, Josh. Thanks for coming, man. Big thanks again to Josh for joining me. We kind of had this podcast in the works for a little while. It took some time to coordinate schedules, but eventually made it happen. I think I speak for both of us by saying we hope that it was worth your time in listening. We hope that you pulled some things out of it that you can apply in your current training regimen, whether that's to do an ultra, spend time on the trail, or, or maybe even some nuggets just to apply to life, whatever it might be. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks with more episodes. If you want to check out any of the Valley to Peak resources, be it some of the free options, the guided courses, we've got some new nutrition fact sheets that have come out. I've really just tried to give you anything that could possibly be helpful across the board. So we've got some old stuff that maybe you're familiar with, some new things that are already out, as well as some new things that are going to roll out through the rest in the end of 2023 and into 2024. If you want to stay up to speed on what those things are, if you think they might be interesting or helpful to you, or you just like knowing what's out there, you can sign up for our newsletter at the v2pnutrition.com website and stay up to speed on everything that's coming up. We'll see you again in another couple of weeks. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.